All right, guys. Well, guess what? We're back for episode number five of Capturing Nature. I'm your host, Lee Hoy, and Capturing Nature is the nature photography podcast that examines the creative, technical, and unpredictable elements of photography in the wild outdoors. I'm coming to you today from Terlingua. I've got, uh, I think, two and a half days of some photography tours here in Big Bend National Park, and then it is off to the Amazon. That's the Wild Side Nature Tours, Amazon Riverboat Photography and Birding Adventure. It is an amazing workshop. Last year, I believe we had eight species of primates, including pygmy marmoset, the smallest species in the world, which was just an absolute delight to get to photograph. We had both gray and pink river dolphin. That was awesome. I got a nice shot of one uh, surfacing with the sunrise. That was a lot of fun. I got to grab my first wild anaconda. We had poison dart frogs. I love to do macro, and we stopped at this white sand forest where the insects are just spectacular. Had a purple pleasing fungus beetle. Maybe I'll have to include an image of that with this particular episode. We go up and down where the Marignan and the uh, Ukiah come together, the two rivers that form the Amazon, and then we take these little skiffs that go up these little tributaries, and we have one skiff for bird watchers and another skiff for photographers, and we just go up and down. Last year we. Had had some giant river otters that uh, squealed out an alarm and I managed to fire off a couple of shots before they dove and despite spending about half an hour looking for them we had no luck then so I can't wait to see what this year proves and we've already got some folks starting to sign up for 2023 so I'll be recording some episodes live from the riverboat and I'll be looking forward to sharing with you what all happens there. I do want to tell you about today's episode we're going to have a couple of different segments. In the segment on the road it's going to be a little bit of a variation had a really negative experience with uh, my personal horrific client, really challenging personality and unfortunately an extremely unpleasant individual. And it made me realize, you know what would be good? I need to share when you're on the road, what are some tips on being a great photography workshop participant? Or if you're in a photography class, whether it's a one hour class, whether it's an online class or whether you're traveling overseas, I'm going to break this into two parts, and today I'm going to share with you some of my tips for how can you be a great participant, because when you're on a workshop, you are a team. And then we're going to talk about setting yourself up for success. I'm going to give you 10 alternate skills to develop as opposed to pixel peeping. I had a really interesting experience on Facebook yesterday that led me to redo what segment I was going to cover today because of uh, you know trying to educate someone on having completely unrealistic expectations all driven by looking at an image at 300%. And I'll share that story with you here in a little bit. And then finally, I'm going to wrap up with a little introduction on the photographer screen, which is where we take a look at post-processing. And I'm going to give you the skinny on the difference between texture and clarity in Lightroom Classic, which is what I use for post-processing. And to help you understand how those two are different. And then I have a companion video that will accompany that on my YouTube channel at Big Ben Birding and Photo Tour. So if you'll hop on over to my YouTube channel, subscribe and like that. That will help me immensely bring you good, fun, educational information. So with that said, let's jump on into today's show. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Well, given... 
how miserable my experience was with this one individual client in Ecuador, I thought it would be good in the on the road segment to give you some tips on how to be the best photography class or workshop or tour participant you can be. I know a lot of times people spend a lot of money on workshops and classes and, and whatnot that are offered by different photography instructors. And sometimes that leads to a, a mindset, perhaps expectations combined with certain personality types that they are owed something for some reason above and beyond what everybody else who paid the same price to be there. And then sometimes there are people who just simply aren't aware of some of the negative aspects of their personality types. I trained for many years on personality types using the DISC personality, D-I-S-C. If you've never done that assessment, I highly encourage it. I'm not as big a fan of Myers-Briggs. I don't feel like it's as easy for people to remember and apply. And I found DISC to be every bit as accurate, if not more so in some respects. So here are some things to keep in mind when you're participating in a workshop or a class, not only because in this particular case in Ecuador, not only did I develop such a, a serious dislike of this individual, it was so stressful. I was thinking, do I want to keep doing this? It messed up the experience for other people who had paid just as much money to be on the same trip as this participant. I saw it suck the life out of Kevin Lachlan, owner of Wildside Nature Tours. It sucked the life out of me. And the funny thing is we've been over backwards trying to make this client happy, which only exacerbated it. In fact, the client was so unaware of their behavior, they talked about potentially going on other workshops with us and thinking was, oh, absolutely not. There's no amount of money that would make it worthwhile. And as I'm about to head off for the Amazon, you know, I think on that workshop, we, we normally have 22. Unfortunately, a couple just had to back out due to unexpected heart surgery. And I feel bad for them. Hope they have a quick recovery. You know, Obviously, as, you, as the number of people on a workshop grows, sometimes one bad individual, that kind of gets taken out in the wash when you have that many people. That's one of our largest, uh, that is the largest number of people we have on a workshop. But when you have four or six, and you know, we try to keep our workshop numbers down and we're going to, at Wildside, we're starting a new Wildside Limited series workshops where we specifically leave it at four or three or less participants calling it the limited, you know, pay a little more, have a little more one-on-one -on -one attention, a little less folks. When you get in, in that kind of size, if you have one really bad apple, man, it's really stinking. It makes a big difference. So this is why, and nobody ever thinks that they're the bad one, but some of you listening, you're the bad one. You should be able to look at a past history of your experiences and in interpersonal relationships to know whether or not it might be you. Okay. So, here are a couple of ways to make sure that you're a great workshop participant or trip participant. Number one, before you travel anywhere or sign up for any class, do your research on the workshop leaders. Do your research on the workshop company or the tour company. Make sure you're going on a photography-oriented trip. We have birding and we have photography tours, but you can't mix that those two groups of people. I am a birder, and I'm a photographer, and I refuse to mix those when I'm doing Big Ben tours. I won't put people, I've had them say, oh, that's the only day I can go. I'll go. It'll be fine. No, it will not be fine. If you're really hardcore serious about photography, you want to make sure you're on a photography-focused trip. You know, when we're in the Galapagos Islands through Wildside, I cannot tell you how much earlier we get on the island, you know, you got your typical tour companies. And one thing you want to make sure is, did you sign up for a cheap tourist trip or photography? Because on that, you're getting what you pay for when you're going on a workshop all too often. There's sometimes where cheaper is better. And that is true in life. But I'm telling you, if you sign up for a generic tourist company trip, 
and your intent is serious photography, odds are you're not even going to be done with breakfast by the time the light's already starting to not get as good. So you got to do your research on what you're signing up for. And I understand that not everybody has an unlimited budget, you know, so sometimes you might only be able to go on that, but that's fine. Set your expectations accordingly so you're not being a butthead on the trip when it's not a photography focused trip. I, I offer birding trips and photography trips here in Big Bend. Birding trips are cheaper because I just point out a bird. There it is. That's the bird. Photography, I'm working a lot harder to get you in the right position for the light, to get you close enough to the bird or the or the mammal or to get you in the right spot. I'm doing so much more. And about three or four times over the last four years, I've had a couple of cheapskates who signed up for a birding trip and clearly they were more interested in photography. It's just because they didn't want to spend the extra money. Well, okay, so I'm supposed to do the extra work. Uh, how does this go? It just goes to show that, uh, you know, there's always going to be somebody that's trying to do that. But do your research. If you can, spend the extra money for a reputable company. Look at how many people they're taking, because there's a big difference in a company that's taking four to six and another one that's taking nine to 12 on the same trip. Are, are they going to get out during good light or are you sitting there eating breakfast when sunrise is occurring, you know, or when great activities are occurring and you should be out? You know, that's the difference between sometimes a generic safari in Africa and a photography based safari. Do your research if you really want it to be photography focused, because here's what's going to happen if you don't and you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to be upset. And it's going to filter out and the guides or the workshop leaders are going to feel it. Your other participants are going to feel it to make sure you're being fair to everybody. Do your research before you sign up. It's imperative on you. And most companies provide a ton of information. I own a couple of campgrounds and I provide obscene amounts of information. And it is quite clear that many of my most problematic campers are folks who refuse to read the ton of information that I provide online and in the messages I send them. So do your research, okay? If you're always trying to go cheap, I've got a client who will sign up for a half-day tour and then want me to tell them where to go to photograph for four days. Well, you know, that's not how that works. I spend a ton of gas. I spend a ton of time on my own learning where things are, scouting. That's not how that works. You don't pay for a half-day and get four-day tour out of me, right? If you tend to be cheap, understand you're often going to get what you're paying for. That does not mean that the best workshop is necessarily the most expensive one, but that is one aspect of what you need to research. Again, in the Galapagos, we when we get out on an island, we spend every minute we possibly can on there. And you see the generic tourist companies, and they're lapping us. They're, they're spending 20 minutes on the island, and we're there four hours. Here's another thing. Ask questions. Now, make sure you do your research first. Then ask questions, but here's where it's even more important to ask questions. When you are out in the field at a class or you're in a classroom with a class or you're doing a photography tour or a workshop, ask your instructors questions. I don't know how else you learn. We can't read minds. We can sometimes see people struggling instead of photographing. They're staring at the back of their camera. They're fiddle farting around with dials or, or knobs or buttons or whatever it might be. But you paid for that experience. I actually at times, and I caution them, don't do this. I have clients sometimes, hey, I'm sorry, I've got a question. Okay, first off, you signed up for a workshop. So why would you apologize for asking a question? I have them say at lunch, oh, I'm sorry, I have a question. You're at lunch with me. You paid for this experience. You feel free to ask questions. And if you get a workshop instructor that when they're around you, they don't want to answer questions, eh, you might not want to travel with a 
with them again. Now, let's say something is happening that's a once in a lifetime or something crazy cool is happening photographic wise. Well, let everybody get finished photographing that and then ask questions. You know, I have a phrase sometimes I'll say, just shoot, just shoot. That means right now is not the time for questions. Right now is the time to capture images. I don't like it when people apologize for asking questions because the reality is, is that's what you're there for. That's how you're going to learn. And if you're the shy type that tends to not ask questions, you're only hurting yourself. You know, if you have questions, you know, before you ever leave, write them down. Because when you get out in the field and everything's happening and you're all excited, you might not even think about those questions, but ask questions. Now, I don't mean being the kind of person that two mornings before you need to know what's happening three days down the road. That's not the kind of question I'm talking about. A great workshop instructor is going to go over the day's information the night before usually some of the high C personalities, D personalities, they have to know everything right now so they can live their life in their 15-minute increments, right? I'm talking about learning your camera gear, learning how to capture an image, learning how to compose, learning how to expose properly in snow. Make sure to ask questions. That's what you're there for. I think that's one of the biggest things that I'm surprised by is how often people don't ask I grew up the son of two educators. You know, my, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a teacher at various levels. My grandfather was a professor at the University of Oklahoma, Go Sooners. And the reality is, is I was raised to have a curious mind, to ask questions and to learn. And the only way I know to get better in life is to find people who know more than I do in something and ask them questions or read a book by them or watch a video by them, right? I've already mentioned this before, is consider that everyone else paid to be there as well. You're no more special. You deserve nothing different than anybody else on the workshop. Now, that doesn't mean you should accept poor service or favoritism. I've heard from some people that, you know, when some workshop instructors have people who've traveled with them a bunch and people who are new, that sometimes they're given a little more attention, favoritism, and that may or may not be perceived accurately. Could be. Probably is in some cases and probably not in some cases. Now, here's something else I found in oh, this nightmare in the Ecuador. Whew, man, it was, a, it was a tough challenge. Share the spot. When you're in a workshop, if you're in a classroom, if you know you have a better shot at something than everybody else, take some images and then ask someone else if they'd like to be there. If you know nobody else can get the shot and you're in that spot, you snap some images, get some good ones, and then share with others. Uh, what would happen is with this particular client is I'd find something really good and say, hey, I've got a great angle. If you let her in first, nobody else in the group got to get that spot. And she would actually come and shove people out of the way or crowd so tight you couldn't even get your hand up to your camera. It got exhausting. Don't be that person. In fact, she was the one who griped the most when she thought someone was getting in her image the reality was she was the worst at getting into images of anybody. And I, I would have to explain to other clients, don't worry, it's not you. She was, I believe, truly oblivious to her behavior, which made it in some ways even worse. If you know you've got a good spot, grab your images. It's like sharing a spotting scope on a birding trip. Take a peek, get your look at the bird, and then step out and let everybody else get a look. And then once everybody else has had a look, then go back and observe more. Share the good spot. I think that's really key to not creating animosity between yourself and other workshop participants. Realize when you go in a workshop, you become a team. Everybody should be working together to make sure everybody has a good time. 
that everybody's being respectful and cordial. And, you know, it's okay to be more shy. I've got some clients, some good friends who are shyer, more introverted. And at times they might skip a meal just to go have a little alone time. Rock on. Nobody ever would see that as problematic, right? It's all these other behaviors that become problematic. Oh, here's a big one with me. Are you ready for this? Be on time. If you go in a workshop with me, you will learn I will leave your ass somewhere. I promise you. Ask my wife, ask my stepsons, ask my kids. Your time is no more valuable than other people. And when you are late, what you're telling others is your time is more important than everybody else. On the last Galapagos trip, I was backing the boat off, told the guys, let's roll. And he walked out. And after that, he didn't walk out late anymore because I'm not I'm not a parent that counts to three and then goes oh, in size. I don't count. I act on number one and I don't count to one. I just act. I will leave you. I promise you, you will miss an outing because it is so disrespectful. If you're meeting at 6 a.m., everybody knows that when they go to bed. If you know you tend to run late, set your bloody alarm clock and get up on time. I promise you, there may be other workshop instructors who won't leave you. I will leave you because you know the time, you know the place, you know what you need to do. So we all have the same amount of time in a day. John Tesh, of all people, this beautiful piece of wisdom on time he shared. And he said this, to say you don't have the time is not a statement of fact. It is a statement of priority. Let me say that again. To say you don't have the time is not a statement of fact. It's a statement of priority. So when you show up late, what you're saying is this isn't a priority. You aren't a priority. Uh, when I started dating uh, my wife, she tended to run late. And I said, I don't, uh, maybe everybody else has accepted this, but it is not going to be acceptable to me because I have things to do. I'm busy. And I remember one time telling her I was about to leave her in the Toronto airport. And she knows me that I would have left her in the Toronto airport because I just don't accept that. That's one of those things that be on time. It's about being polite, about being respectful. And, and you know what? why cost other people a part of the experience? They paid for it. So that's also just a personal pet peeve of mine. I understand that there are things that do happen in life. And when you explain that, I'm the first one to be understanding. We've all had something go weird, like when we changed from daylight savings time to something else and a phone back in the day didn't work or whatever. We all have had something once. But you know what? One time, then two times. No. No, I'm telling you, you'll get left if you're on one of my workshops. So, all right, here's another big pet peeve and one that's highly disrespectful to the group. I understand that sometimes people aren't as patient as they should be for photography. I will probably do an episode at some point with a big segment on patience, which I believe is one of the most important factors for great wildlife photography. If you get impatient and you tend to be a wanderer, and you know, we all know wanderers, the people that tend to leave the group for whatever reason, they just get impatient on waiting for a bird or they're just wanderers. They're just people who aren't good at sticking together as a group. If you must wander, wander behind the group where they have already been. How dare you walk out in front of the group and flush subjects because A, you're either clueless as to what you're doing or B, you're just flat rude. Do not wander in front of the group. You wander where the group has already been. Now, on some places, like the Galapagos Islands, you have to stay together. So we often have to rein people in and say, hey, guys, we have to stay together. We cannot get separated. And also realize that when you get separated and you leave the workshop leader's side, you're missing out, plain and simple. 
But there are those that for whatever reason, they're wanders. They just want to go do their own thing. And okay, rock on, have a ball. But you wander behind the group. Don't be rude. Don't be disrespectful. Because you might be interested in one thing, but as you're walking along, you're flushing everything else. And oh, that is so aggravating. I can't tell you how how often I see that happen in groups. And uh, so nowadays, I just talk about that guideline from the very beginning. And if you're a workshop instructor, you know what? Uh, Lisa Langell, who's a dear friend, phenomenal photographer, and going to be doing some workshops with Wildside in addition to some of the phenomenal workshops she does on her own. She has this great spiel she does, and she shared it with me one time, and she has a background in psychiatry. It was a great opening night speech, basically, about we are a team. We're going to work together for everybody's enjoyment. We're going to work together to make sure everybody has, you know, gets great images and has a good time. And hers is much more eloquent. And maybe sometimes she'll allow me to share it with you on here. But I really feel like that's the mindset you need to have. Yes, I know you have paid a lot of money, whether it's a class, whether it's a workshop or a tour, you have, and that's an investment. And that's one of the reasons I work as hard as I do is because I recognize that investment from people. But remember, every other participant there did the same thing you did. They have the same right to having a good time. They have the same right to getting a good shot. They have the same right to the place they've been in that you do. So those are a few of my initial tips. This is part one of how to be a great photography workshop or work or photography class participant. I will be doing a second part next week as well. So take those tips, you know, maybe go do a DISC, the disc personality type. I know mine. I know my wives. I can assess people very quickly and understand a lot of times you're someone say, treat people the way you'd want to be treated. You can't always do that. I want extremely direct communication. And you'll probably pick up on that as you listen to this podcast. But there are some personality types. If I speak to a high S personality type, you know, your librarian, the stable, steady, the nurse kind. If I speak to them the same way I speak to a, a high D personality, I'm going to hurt their feelings. So I'm, even though the high D wouldn't be, their feelings wouldn't be hurt. The high S is, oh my goodness, their feelings would be hurt. I think that's important that you discover your personality because all of our personality types have strengths and weaknesses. And perhaps sometime on a future episode, I'll share those, but learn who you are, know your weaknesses, and then learn how to attune them or tone them down when you're on a workshop so that it doesn't have a big negative impact. So hope that's helpful. I hope it'll help you have better photography experiences in the future. All right, guys, I want to share with you in today's segment on setting yourself up for success the 10 alternative skills instead of pixel peeping. I have to share with you about an experience that happened yesterday on Facebook uh, on a page, like a group for photographers. And I'm not going to give too much detail so you don't go there and try to find it. An individual, this gentleman, had posted an image of two red-shouldered hawks. They were centered in the image. The light was harsh. The two hawks were probably 5% of the entire image. So they were a long ways away. He was using a consumer type lens and he griped about, well, I spent 600 on it. That's not consumer to me. And I understand $600 is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money when it comes to a lens. Pro lenses start getting much more expensive than that. He had a consumer quality lens. He had then zoomed in 300% on a already cropped image. So he, he significantly reduced the image. And he started off with like a 20 something megapixel image. Okay. So then he cropped it. Then he zoomed into 300% to show this little bit of purple fringing on the backside of a limb that had been partially in shade. And he was trying to figure out the source of this color. Now, a 
he really should have been learning composition, how to read lighting, why not to shoot a picture when you're almost pointed straight up at a bird, how it's almost never going to be pleasing unless you're maybe trying to photograph, you know, a soaring raptor up above or something. I mean, the image itself was mediocre. It wasn't even really mediocre. I'm trying to be too nice. It was an image you would take to try to identify a bird and then zoom way in and go, oh, yeah, that's what it is and move on. There was nothing creative. Composition sucked. Lighting sucked. His exposure was actually fairly well done for the lighting situation. So I'll give him props there. But he clearly didn't understand the physics and the limitations of pixels. And as we zoom way in, and pixel peepers, I should probably do this as a clicked off segment in the future. They drive me absolutely nuts. You know, pixel peepers tend to be men, probably in their 20s up until maybe their 50s, sometimes above. Predominantly, there's some women out there, but mostly men. They look at images that were a never, nobody's looking at an image at 300%, right? Now we might zoom in at 100% just to really make sure it's nice and sharp where we want it to be. Pixel peepers, they spend all their time arguing on Facebook about what is the best equipment, pixel peeping, griping about what they perceive as chromatic aberration, which was suggested so many times in this thread and had nothing to do with chromatic aberration. The admin got on to me because I was a little direct in my communication. Well, good grief. At some point, you just lose patience with some of these silly things and you, you're you not going to be gentle about it. You're just like, look, man, you are having unrealistic expectations. There's nothing about this situation that needs any real in-depth analysis because what I can tell you is what you're doing is so unreasonable. You don't understand the limitations of your equipment. You don't understand the realities of pixels. You don't understand quality of light. You don't understand composite. I mean, there's so many bigger things to work on here. And what's so funny is when someone's pixel peeping, I often click on their profile and go look at their images. And I'll tell you probably 80% of the time their images suck. They love to brag about having the best equipment, but most time their images are really bad. I mean, I'm just telling you from my experience what I look at. So I decided to come up with some alternative skills for you. So if you're a pixel peeper, I want you to get into the recovery program and I'm going to have 10 alternative skills for you to work on instead of pixel peeping. Because I will tell you that these are the, the Facebook keyboard warriors. One guy, I told him, I said, well, you know, you're on here acting to be an expert. I looked at his photography and I was like, my God, it's terrible. And he said, well, so are you. I said, well, I kind of am an expert. I mean, this is what I do for a living. I make a really good living at it. I'm, you know, I know what I'm doing. I know I suck at most things in life. Here's one of my sweet spots, you know, or four or five sweet spots. And you can sound really smart if you only stick to those things you really know. You won't ever hear me having any argument over opera. I hate it. I don't care. I hope you love it if you do, great. But my feelings aren't hurt if I hurt your feelings over not liking opera. It's terrible. It drives me nuts. It's one of the worst sounds I hear. I can respect that there's great talent required to sing that way, but uh, it's awful to me. You will never hear me having any kind of an intelligent conversation about opera because I'm ignorant about it because I don't like it. So I talk and focus on those things I know. And here's one of them. Quit pixel peeping. This guy was worried about the colors on the backside of a branch. And I was trying to explain depth of field and how it works. And I was trying to explain what the limitations of that lens are. And even the admin of this group was like, well, that doesn't really address. No, my point being, who cares what the color on the back of a branch is at 300% on an already cropped image that started out in 20 something megapixels. I mean, let's deal with the things that we really should be dealing with here. Okay. I guess that was sort of a mini rant, wasn't it? I kind of enjoyed it. So that means it probably was. Okay, so here's the first alternative skill. So when you get tempted to, to really spend some time pixel peeping, go do this instead, right? Work on understanding 
bird or wildlife or reptile, amphibian, insect behavior so that you can then begin to put yourself in position for a better image or a closer image so that you don't have to zoom in or crop the crap out of your image. A lot of times this is just attributed to lazy photographers. They want to buy a long focal length lens thinking they're going to photograph a warbler at 100 feet and then crop the ever-loving crap out of it so they can have a quote-unquote great image. I will tell you, I probably crop less than 5% of my images. And most of that's probably going to be bird and flight or some subject was moving and I, I'm, I'm just not right. You know, maybe the original composition isn't where I want it to be. And I've just learned I want to shoot in camera as close as possible for my composition. I mean, there's no excuse for landscape, for crying out loud. You're pretty much in control of it, right, all the time. Macro, I almost never crop. I want to shoot as is. It's not always being a lazy photographer, right? There are some species we got to stay a certain distance from and whatnot. I get that, right? Nests and some other sensitive things. However, you know, I recently walked up on a bird in Ecuador to see how close I could get. This bird was a flycatcher, perch out in the open, and I managed to get close enough with a macro lens to almost feel the frame just because I knew how to approach the bird, extend it slowly. I just wanted to work on my stalking skills. And this, my lens ultimately got within probably a foot or so of this bird. And I even backed away. I practiced backing away where the bird didn't fly away. I mean, it was awesome. And I'm not saying you need to be able to creep within a foot of every bird to get a great shot. What I'm saying is work on understanding bird behavior mammal behavior, reptile, so that you can then put yourself in position to get a great shot instead of just trying to photograph something a mile and a half away and then crop the crap out of your image. You know, I hear people say, oh, this new Canon or Sony, it's got 50 megapixels. I know what they're thinking. Oh, well, I can crop the crap out of it. I just think, oh God, okay, that's so depressing to me. But nevertheless, that's the reality for some. But instead, learn how certain birds behave. Learn how to put a tree, you know, like uh, maybe I got a roadrunner to campground down here at Big Ben and a client will start to just try to walk directly at the roadrunner to get there. And I'll say, hold on, hold on, see that tree, put the tree directly behind or in front of you and the bird. So the bird walk up behind the tree and then just slowly ease out around the edge, you know, use that as a blind, so to speak, so that you, the bird, something doesn't sense you just coming directly at it. So there's all different kinds of skills. Learning when to get on your belly and crawl towards a subject is so much better. You know, shorebirds, I remember crawling on a beach down in Texas and getting within six feet of a common turn. You wouldn't walk anywhere that close to a common turn by just walking right up to it and then trying to lay down at the last second. So work on the skills necessary by learning the behavior of different birds. Certain birds in certain areas are going to tolerate things. In Big Ben, the roadrunners and campgrounds are much calmer. They're much tamer. But you see a roadrunner just out and about away from a campground, man, they are not going to tolerate people getting anywhere close to them. True for many species of lizard. You find a lizard that lives along a little uh, heavily used trail. I can often lay on my belly and crawl and get my lens within a few inches of that lizard. I see that same species, you know, a mile away from that pullout. I'm not getting 30 feet within that lizard. Okay. But I know that I learned that understanding the behavior of animals will help you immensely. So here we go. Alternative skill number two, when you're tempted to do a lot of pixel peeping, are you ready? Pick up a book 
on color management and learn how to do color management and quality output. Learn how to calibrate your monitors. Learn how to calibrate your screens so that you can have more accurate color, so that you can edit better. Learn how to shoot custom camera profiles using the Color Checker Passport Pro, little thing I have that I use for creating custom camera profiles for my different OMD Olympus bodies. There's a great book called Color Management and Quality Output, Working with Color from Camera to Display to Print. Find a good book on some technical aspect or creative aspect of photography and read it like color management. I'll admit, at first I was a little intimidated by it, and this was many years ago. And then I started reading. I'm like, oh, okay, wow, I have a much better understanding. Like, I understand now that Adobe RGB should be what you're shooting in more so than sRGB because Adobe RGB as a color profile is a much larger gamut of colors. Yes, our monitors can't fully display all of those colors, but as technology improves, it'll probably get there. Plus, you're just capturing more information. You should always, when you get your cameras, look and see, are you in sRGB or are you in Adobe? Move to Adobe, capture more information in it, okay? Here we go. Alternative skill number three when you're tempted to do some pixel peeping. Spend more time learning how to expose to the right, ETTR, and capture a proper raw image to begin with. Spend more time learning how to expose to the right. So many of the problems that people experience with their images are a result of underexposing their digital images. And that's something we don't want to do. That creates so much noise when we try to brighten it up. And I'm not saying you can't do a little bit of, you know, maybe a, a little minor brightening images up. And, and certainly some sensors have more leeway than others. And learning your camera gear will be very important. But when you expose an image to the right properly, guess what? You don't have to do nearly as much post-processing to try to make things look really good. So capture, learn how to capture a great raw file. Start from there. I think that'll be very important. Okay, so alternative skill number four. You ready? Why don't you take an online class, whether it's free or paid, you know, some webinar that might be available in an area that you tend to struggle with in photography, such as maybe you don't really know how to use the autofocus settings on your specific brand of camera. Like I know in Olympus, there's three tabs of information that all can affect your autofocus settings. So maybe look, you know, whether it be find a book, take a class, watch an online video from someone, but learn what those settings do and how they impact your autofocus. Because even if you think, oh, wow, I got new bird tracking, which, you know, I can't wait to get my own one, uh, the bird tracking, the processing power, which is already one of the fastest cameras in terms of processing of any out there, probably was EM1X was probably the fastest. And now the OM1 will probably be the fastest in terms of processing power. Even with the bird tracking, how incredible that's going to be, you still need to know what settings are going to help it work its best. Another thing you might go learn is why do you need to use manual exposure mode for birds in flight? Spend some time learning that. What about how to properly expose an image in snow? So many people underexpose images on snow, then they try to brighten it up and you have no detail or you end up with gray snow or horrible images. You know, watch some videos. If you're going to be going to go photograph somewhere, if you're coming with me, Yellowstone in winter next year, well, you better know how to make sure you properly expose so you can capture a really nice image to begin with. So maybe there's one other skill that you're really looking at. Maybe it's, hey, how can I really organize my images well in Lightroom, right? Or maybe you're thinking about learning Capture One. Okay, great. Invest some time in an area that you struggle with. If you're not good at post-processing, spend some time learning that. That would be so much better than spending your time pixel peep. So here we go. Alternative skill number five. 
spend some time outside just learning to read light and begin to learn what type of light tends to translate into great images. Study a scene and know when front light is really good. Study a scene and start learning when backlighting and getting some really cool rim lighting. You know, study a scene at side lighting and look, figure out what looks good. One type of light I love out here is when, you know, you've got stormy skies, really dark blue off in the back, and then you got nice warm frontal sun coming in. I love that. And we get that out here in the desert a lot in the monsoon season in July, August, June, July, August, sometimes September. And it produces these beautiful images, right? Uh, what is harsh light? Uh, you know, there's a great book. I cannot remember who wrote it right now called Shooting in Shitty Light. And that's the, that's the legitimate title of it. You can search it on Amazon. Wow, that's a great book for those that, and she, while she's primarily a portrait photographer, if you'll learn the skills and the, the principles and the knowledge behind it, that will translate to nature photography. Alternative skill number six, stop thinking you are somehow more pure by not post-processing your images. What you're doing is revealing your lack of skills, which, which should account for about 50% of your photography. Out in the field, it should be about half, and post-processing should be about half. Learn what the innate properties of a raw file are. For example, every raw file needs some sharpening. It's just the way a raw file works. And I'm not going to spend the time right now explaining it, but you just need to know Every raw file needs what we call pre-sharpening. And then whenever you export an image, whether it be for the screen or print, whatever, then it needs post-sharpening on the way out. Learn what post-processing can do. I see this all the time. This image is S-O-O-C, straight out of camera. Let me explain this. There is no such thing. Because if you're shooting in JPEG, your camera is inevitably applying some post-processing. Color profile at a minimum. Unless you have it set to neutral like I do, which applies nothing, and it's going to look kind of flat because I'm in charge of the post-processing. There's a professional photographer. I'm not going to mention their name. They boast that they don't do any post-processing and that all you're seeing is a TIFF file. Well, newsflash, you can't shoot in TIFF, which means there's some post-processing occurring between the time they take the image and the time they show it. Now, they may not be in control of the post-processing, which I surely hope a pro would not pretend that's what's going on. I don't know why they say it. They're great photographer, great images, seem like a super nice person. But come on, man. I mean, surely you have more technical knowledge than that if you're a pro that you can't shoot in TIFF. And whenever you see an image on Facebook, it's in JPEG. It's not showing you a raw file. So there's no way you're looking at an unprocessed image, plain and simple. So either you're in charge of your post-processing or your camera is. I would much rather be in charge of my images post-processing. So spend some time learning about the technical side of a raw file. Alternative skill number seven. If you're a bird photographer, pick up a book on bird behavior or better yet, go out in the field and just watch them. And I don't mean take a field guide and go identify them. I mean, watch it how certain species of birds, some stay on the ground to forage. Some forage from the tops of trees and fly out and grab a bug and fly back to that very spot. Now, because I've been a birder for so much of my life, I'll see my clients start to put their camera down when a bird flies. No, 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 keep it up. It's going to fly right back to that branch. Or knowing some of the basic behaviors of how roadrunners tend to you know, when they're hunting, they'll walk a few steps, stop, they'll raise the tail, they might raise their crest, they're going to look, and then they're going to walk again. And once you learn that pattern of behavior, it makes it easier for you to capture great images. Learning what the signs of a bison, what does it mean when he raised his tail? 
learning what it means when certain animals get too alert. You know, like how certain birds raise that neck when they're getting a little concerned. Like ducks, when you see them about to take off, that neck will get extended like they're getting ready to explode out of the water. So as you learn bird behavior, it'll help you capture better images. Now, here's an alternative skill number eight. Maybe spend some time learning how to use the app PhotoPills. Uh, which I think is the most powerful photography app there is. PhotoPills is phenomenal. It has so many features in it. There's a lot to it. You can spend a lot of time trying to learn PhotoPills. So there you go. Instead of pixel peeping, go develop your ability to use PhotoPills to help set up images. Number nine, alternative skill number nine. Keep in mind that a lot of the feedback you might get from photographers on Facebook could be photographers whose skill is less than yours. The number of suggestions, and, and if and if you know anything about wildlife, just go watch a birding group, a reptile group, and if you know what species something is, 80% of the suggestions on there are going to be wrong. So if 80% of the people suggesting IDs for animals in different groups on Facebook are wrong, what do you think the percentage is for people telling you what the actual problem with your images is? I was amazed at how many people automatically threw out chromatic aberration, which I guess because it's a fancy sounding word, they thought that's what it was. Nobody bothered to look that he shot at 600 millimeters at one 320th of a second. So right off the bat, your image isn't going to be tack sharp. He couldn't, what's this color? Why, why are the feet looking like this? Well, my God, you know, he was a senior. Like you're going halfway below, you know, almost a full stop of light below where you should be on your shutter speed. And while some people can get away with that, he might not be able to. Even with better IS, you got to know your own strengths and weaknesses. So when you're getting feedback on Facebook, maybe it would behoove you to look and see who's giving you suggestions. Another really good photographer on there said, Lee, I agree with you. And we both got chastised. I think some of our comments got removed. It should be okay to tell somebody they're wrong. Now, the people whose ridiculous suggestions that was chromatic aberration, their comments didn't get removed. And I was factual, even though I was more direct in my communication, if you want just someone to tell you your images are awesome, ask your mom, your grandma, your wife, your girlfriend. I don't care about number of likes on an image. That means, I, you know, I don't care because so much of it is coming from people who they, they don't really even know photography. So that's okay. I'm glad you like my image, but that's not what drives me to knowing whether an image is good or not. Remember, I think the largest, the, the, the Instagram account with the most followers is Kim Kardashian and it's all over her butt, right? So Don't get too caught up in huge numbers of likes. That's what I would suggest. Okay, alternative skill number 10. Stop pixel peeping. There's no need for it. If you want to zoom in 100% to check, maybe is it really sharp? Because sometimes at full size, it might look sharp on the breast, but then you get to the eye of the bird and your autofocus point hit the breast. And by the time it gets to the eye, maybe your depth of field is already starting to degrade. And so sometimes you might need to zoom in there. But if you're scanning the whole image, trying to find something wrong at 300%, I got news for you. You're probably going to find something wrong at 300%. You never frame a print, put it on the wall, and then stand half an inch from it to look at it. It's so silly. The number of people on Facebook who think there's something wrong with their equipment, I think right now I own nine camera bodies. The only time there's ever a problem is when I mess up, right? Or I break something. I mean, I've broken lenses by letting them hit rocks and things like that. But it's mind-boggling to me the number of beginners and amateurs who think there's something wrong with their equipment without ever asking, hey, guys, what might I be doing wrong, okay? There you go. 10 alternative skills to pixel peep. And don't be that guy on Facebook.
Okay, guys, this next segment is called the photographer screen, and this is where we take a look at post-processing. And again, I use Lightroom Classic, so for those of you that don't, this still might be informative, but if you use, you know, one of the other products, DxO, Pure Lab, or you use Capture One, whatever, any of those other ones, this might not apply as much to you. But still having a basic understanding in case you ever do move over would be helpful. In addition, I've recorded a companion video and what you should do is listen to this segment and get the understanding of clarity and texture because we're talking about the skinny on texture and clarity and then hop over to my YouTube channel, which is the Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours channel and watch that video and that'll help you. I think, I think it'll be better to listen to this and then go watch the video. So when texture was just added in one of the recent updates, at first I was curious, and as I did some research, I was like, oh, this is really dramatically different than Clarity, and I use Clarity at its proper place and in, in quite a few of our images, and here you'll understand why. I mean, if you think about it, Clarity works on mid-tones, and nature photography often involves a lot of mid-tones. So let's talk about clarity and texture and what they do first. And then we'll talk about when you should use them. So clarity is going to add or reduce if you slide the slider to the negative, it will reduce. But if you slide it to the positive side, it is going to add contrast to your midtones and it can have an overall sharpening effect and enhance the contrast in there. Now, as you take clarity too far, it really begins to create some dark areas. It'll it'll push things to solid black that you probably don't want push there. You'll lose, you know, it'll just go jet black. Well, in addition, if you go too far, you can get some really extreme results. And I see this in images every now and then when people overuse clarity. But clarity is only going to impact your midtones, okay? not touching shadows and highlights and whatnot. So now it can darken them, but it's not going to create contrast there. Texture, on the other hand, adds or reduces contrast to high frequency areas. So for example, high frequency areas are where there is a lot of variation in colors, brightness, or shadows. So let me say that again. Texture will add or reduce contrast to high frequency areas. And the definition of high frequency is those areas that have quite a variation in color, brightness, and or shadows. For example, if you had a uniform purple sky, nice sunset, there's not really any clouds, but you get that cool purple color, that's going to be a low frequency because the color's consistent, the brightness level would be consistent, and the shadows would be consistent. That's going to be a low frequency area, and hence, texture isn't going to touch it. So texture is going to add contrast or reduce to areas with high frequency where there is a lot of variation in colors, brightness, or shadows. So obviously the inverse, an area with relative consistency of color, brightness, or shadows, that would be low frequency. So texture and clarity both have a contrasty sharpening effect when you use them, but where they have the impact varies. You could have a low frequency but mid-tone object and it would be affected by clarity, but not by texture. So let's say you had a really consistent sandy area, right? Smooth or like a clay area where there's not much texture and there's not much shadow, but it's all one color, but it's mid-tone. Clarity would work on that, but texture wouldn't. But if you have a low frequency 
area. So in other words, the colors, the contrast, the brightness, the shadows are consistent and it's a highlight. Neither clarity or texture will work on that area. It's not going to have an impact. But if you have a low frequency area and a highlight area, like I was just talking about, and it's a bright sky, it won't be affected by clarity or texture. Again, clarity adds or reduces contrast to the midtones, whereas texture is going to add or reduce contrast to high frequency areas. Like out here in the desert, I'm out in Big Bend right now, and you know, we've got these really rugged mountains. If you have those mountains in there, but you got a solid blue sky, which is pretty boring usually for photography, right? But let's say you've got a solid blue sky, and then you've got these rugged desert mountains. Well, that blue sky is going to be low frequency. So texture isn't going to impact that blue sky. And that blue sky isn't really, a, you know, it's not much of a midtone. So again, clarity isn't going to impact it much. But those mountains, they're going to be both a lot of midtones and high frequency areas. So contrast and texture would both have an impact. Now, in the video you're going to see on my channel, I've got a picture of a Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. It's a ewe female, and you'll be able to see how contrast and texture both have an impact on this U because it's mid-tone and it has a lot of variation because of the pelt. It's a high frequency area. So both of them have an impact and you'll be able to watch a video and see how the impact varies. But the background has some snow, some white areas, and you'll see how neither one impacts that, but you'll see like some real blurry branches in the background and you can see how clarity in particular really has an impact on it. I use clarity and texture both. It depends on what I'm using them for. I believe both can really help your image, but you have to know what they're impacting to apply it. And another thing with Lightroom masking, you can be very selective where you apply it. Even though clarity could impact your sky, you might not want more contrast in your clouds. So you could just run a Lightroom mask, select the sky, then do an inverse and select the ground and then run clarity and or texture on that and leave the sky alone completely. So when we're using clarity, we are going to increase the contrast on those areas that have midtones. When we're working with texture, we are going to add or reduce the contrast on those areas of high frequency. Those areas, again, are areas with great variation in color, brightness, shadows, contrast, you know, those kind of things. So there's your verbal introduction in the lowdown on texture and clarity. Now hop over to my YouTube channel, Big Ben Burning and Photo Tours, and watch the video. And if you've got a dual screen setup, have an image of yours on the left, pause the video at times, and experiment with the clarity and the texture slider as I go along in the video. And hopefully that'll help you. You know, every little bit you can improve your post-processing, the better all of your images will be. All right, guys. Well, that's going to be a wrap from Big Bend National Park. I'm getting ready to head out in the morning at 6 a.m. Go look for some great landscape shots. I hope that today's episode has been fun. I hope you've learned something. You know what? If you would help me out, I would sure appreciate it. If you could click on that subscribe to the podcast and the like. And you know what? Take that link and share it with others if you think it would benefit them in their pursuit of nature photography. I know I would be greatly appreciative and it would sure help me continue to bring you some great information through this podcast. Also, hop on over to tourbigbend.com. That's my website where you can learn about some of the custom tours and pre-scheduled tours I offer out here in the Big Bend region of West Texas. 
Don't forget, go over to Get Olympus, check out their Olympus gear. You know, if you want to go lighter, if you'd rather not spend 20 grand on a lens, I just saw the price of one of the new lenses. It's just ridiculous. You know, that used to could buy you a car at one point. Well, go to Get Olympus. You've got great learning center articles by some of the Olympus pros out there and learn how to use your Olympus gear. Also, hop over to wildsidenaturetours.com. Myself and many other great photographers like Elise Bender. We've got Lisa Langell going to be joining us for some workshops. Tom and Lisa Katura. I've got Jennifer Lee Warner. Man, we've added a lot of new photographers to the Wildside team here recently, and I'm looking forward. I'll be interviewing them at some point in the future and getting to share their aspects and their interests and their knowledge with you through photography. Also, Precision Camera and Video in Austin, Texas, my home camera store. I lead workshops, adventure workshops for them, not just here in Texas, but I've got a Panama workshop coming up later this year, and I'm going to have Galapagos trip this year, so keep an eye out. We're going to be broadening our offerings through Precision Camera. If you'd like to follow me, I'd sure appreciate it on Facebook at Big Ben Birding and Photo Tours and on Instagram, Big Ben Birding Photo Tours. That would sure help me out. Listen, spend some time this next couple of weeks, learn your gear, master your gear, learn the technical and creative side of photography, and most of all, get out there and have some fun. Enjoy this beautiful world. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to next time.